What a joy to be in the great city of Oklahoma where Annie got her gun. Is that right? Did I, am I got it right? And uh, what a joy to have the wife of my youth, 41 years next month, be married. Uh, unashamedly want to say to you, the only woman that I've ever loved, ever touched, and uh, who, who is just the most amazing gift from heaven to, to me. And together we have so enjoyed serving Jesus in ministry for 37 years. And we're not quitting anytime soon. We're not backing off. We're leaning in. And uh, thank you so much for receiving us. And Josh and the elders, thank you for, for this amazing privilege to stand in this pulpit and, and serve Christ uh, among you. Uh, also, thank you for releasing Josh and Nancy and uh, uh, Elijah and Olivia to come and be with us and serve uh, what God is doing in our context. Uh, uh, perhaps you're not aware of the kind of impact that uh, that has. I had to join a redemption group after their last visit to Cape Town simply because all my guys were walking around saying, Josh this, Josh that. We want to be like Josh. It's not, I want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Josh. I mean, they want to dress like Josh, exegete like Josh, do liturgy like Josh. Uh, eventually, I decided if you can't beat them, join them. And so I also want to be like Josh in a number of areas. And so, uh, so I thought I'd be really cool and wear sandals. And then I'm the only guy on the whole team wearing sandals today. But anyway... What a joy. And Josh, thank you for the, the gift of prophetic exaggeration. It's nine congregations, uh, but we're planning to plant, in God, plant nine congregations in the next five years, uh, not because we're a brand or a church growth movement. We just want to multiply access points for people far from God to find homecoming, to find music in the Father's house where prodigals can come and return home and find that there's an embrace waiting for them. So I want to speak to you this morning on what I've called celebrating, calling, and commissioning fatherhood. Don't get too stuck on the celebrating. I think we've done that this morning, so let's bank that one. And uh, let me just say this. You know, dads pour their lives out, both biological and spiritual dads. They, they're providing, they're affirming, they're investing, they're correcting, they're hugging, they're, you know, they're affirming and they're prophesying in all kinds of ways. And so today, let's just make sure that we push some of that back on the dads. Let's affirm, let's hug, let's uh, prophesy, and let's also buy him some Budweiser. Uh, <laughs> Let's read together God's Word, and uh, we're going to read from Ephesians three fourteen through 21, and then Malachi 4, 1 to 6, uh, all in the ESV. So follow on the screens or in your devices or in your Bibles. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length 
and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. From Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is God's word to us, and this is God's word to all generations. Let's come before him in prayer. Gracious God, as we come before you and your holy word, we pray that we would hear a sound from heaven today, that our minds and our lives would be penetrated with truth, with grace, with fresh commissions. We pray that you would uh, tune our hearts to yours. We pray that you would give us tender hearts as we hear the word of God. I ask that you would even turn our hearts and transform our hearts as we hear and respond to these ancient truths. All this for the sake of your name, for the sake of your mission. Amen. Four things that God wants to say to us today. Number one, to a hurting, alienated generation that's in the cities of Cape Town and Oklahoma City, some of that generation is among us, and I don't want to put an age bracket around that. If God wants to say to us, I'm in the heart-turning business. That last verse of Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, and I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Just think about it. It's the, it's the last verse of the Old Testament. It's the last thing that the Holy Spirit records it's a kind of bridge between the law and the prophets. And it leads in to the rest of what's coming. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all the unfolding of the story of Jesus in the New Testament. The prophet is announcing that there's a day coming when whatever the fault lines are in his day and in future generations, there's a day coming where that will be addressed. There's a day coming where there's going to be a turning. And I want you to notice, God is speaking. Yes, his instrument here is Elijah, who is a prototype of John the Baptist, who would come as the forerunner to Jesus coming into the world, who would live that perfect life, who is moving toward us with undeserved and scandalous grace. But it's God who's at work, and God is announcing that part of what the gospel does in every generation is it turns the hearts of fathers to children. And it turns the hearts of children to fathers. I think it's so important for us to understand that we are not just cooks bobbing in oceans of insecurity and carried along by the currents. There's a God who says, I can act into history. I can interrupt the stories of alienation. can turn hearts. What I want you to notice is he's turning the hearts of fathers first. That's the divine order. If we want to see the hearts of a, uh, a rising generation of men and women turn, we're going to need to see a whole new level of uh, God turning the hearts of fathers, first of all, toward him. And as a result of hearts that are in tune with God's heart, we move toward the, the children that are on the doorstep of our lives, that are in the, uh, in the workplaces with us, on the sports fields with us, in the gyms with us. Speaks to me of a God who is not far off. He's familiar with everything that is going on in our culture and in our day. He's familiar with the restlessness. He's familiar with the soul famine. He's familiar with the subtle tyrannies that master us and drive us. He hears the cry for identity. Heard the story a little while back of a rabbi in the first century. He was going praying, praying around the streets of Jerusalem. And this is the Rigby Wallace version of that story. And he's walking around these cobble streets, stroking his beard and uh, walks down an alley to the left and an alley to the right and eventually comes out of this, outside these massive big gates and there's this huge big centurion standing with his, with his spear and the centurion barks out, Who are you? And why are you here? To which the rabbi continues to stroke his beard and looks at him and says, Excuse me, sir, will you say that again? Who are you? Why are you here? says to the centurion, tell me, sir, how much do they pay you here to do that? He said, I get paid 20 denarii a week to do this. To which the rabbi said, sir, I will pay you 40 denarii a week if you come and stand outside my house. And every time I go out and every time I come in, you ask me, who are you? Identity. And why are you here? Purpose and mission. 
and felt a cry in so many people, the reason why so many of our young men and women are drifting into cul-de-sacs is because that question is not being answered. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message that cries out to us, you'll know who you are when you know whose you are. And in the gospel, we find homecoming to a father who is so generous, so kind, and so gracious. Of course, the fruit of the alienation of our culture, the fault lines that we see, is the result of an alienation from this father. And uh, the beauty of being in a community like this, the beauty of if you're new to church and you're trying to understand what's this all about, and uh, I hope you can see this is an accessible community. This is an accessible message. We're just maybe a little ahead of some of you in the journey, but we're as needy and as desperate for homecoming in our hearts on a regular basis. Yes, we've experienced transforming grace, but uh, we've just had the crumbs from a table that keeps feeding us. Secondly, a word to the fatherless here in our cities, pursue St. Paul's. <sighs> There's no program, my dear friends, that's going to make this happen. There's no tricks that we can work. There's no systems. If there are supplementary things we do, but, but it's going to take God doing something in the hearts of people who recognize those fault lines that are hurting and harming us, start to realize we need to find some spiritual fathers. And if God can turn the hearts of fathers, he can be at work in our generation, turning the hearts of children, sons and daughters. He can be at work in your heart, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. There's a God who loves you. There's a God who knows you. There's a God who's committed to you. And he can do something very, very powerful in your life. The alienation that we or our younger generation experience is exacerbated by the 21st century sociological realities. The breakdown in homes where sons and daughters have distant and sometimes non-existent and really hurtful relationships with dads. It's going to take more than a system to turn that around. It's going to take God through the gospel getting a hold of our hearts. Folk, it's not a perfect father that your earthly father is not going to create homecoming. It's going to be God at work in your life that will put those new drivers. It will be God awakening you to the fact that you can't self-manage and self-generate all that you need to live the life that you were called to live. In the past, sons would work alongside their fathers and they would learn skills and competencies. More than that, they would learn behaviors and values. That's why Timothy comes along and uh, or Paul comes along on his second missionary journey and calls uh, Timothy to join him. He was born into a family where he was exposed to the gospel, most probably through his through his mom and and and, and grandmom, mom, grandmother. What do you say, mom or mother? Okay, grandmother, whatever. And uh, 
but he had a Greek dad, and there's no biblical indication that he, that Greek dad was a Christian. And uh, it's we need to thank God for our biological dads, but we need more than that. We need some hopefully biological dads that can be spiritual dads, but we also need, every one of us need to realize you need more than your biological dad. You're going to need some Pauls. You're going to need some people who you pursue, something awakens in your heart. And that's not going to happen in some fathering class where we invite people. It's going to be as God's turning and raising up spiritual fathers in this community and in our generation, in our city. It's going to need to be corridor moments and fireside conversations and coffees and uh, uh, working out in the gym. And you can get a body like mine. All you've got to do is nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I've got four congregation leaders here because we've come to learn from you guys. You guys are ahead of the curve in so many areas, and we so want to learn, but uh, we want to learn this whole beautiful possibility of an ancient faith with a contemporary face. Don't get that the wrong way around, eh? Ancient face with a contemporary faith. We, we want to learn to pursue a more transcendent, culture-engaging spirituality. We want to bring those worlds together. But four of the guys are like spiritual sons. And when I look back on how those guys emerged in our context and how they ended up leading congregations. Uh, uh, let me just brag a little. The average age of our congregation leaders is 37. When we started Common Ground 20 years ago, the average age was, was 17. Some of them were not Christians. Some of them were, most of them were not, none of them were married. <laughs> they certainly didn't have any kids. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's long haul investment, but those guys somehow uh, God turned their hearts to the fathers in our community, and I played a, a role in that. One of them is preaching in your South Campus uh, this morning, Taryn Williams. And uh, I've told the story a few times uh, with his permission. And uh, I have stink- distinct memories where he's coming in, and he's just into our church in the early days. Incredibly gifted guy was looking for this amazing platform for his gift. And, and uh, I didn't see the amazing giftedness. I just saw a cry for fathering and a cry for would somebody nurture this life? Would somebody uh, aim this potential in a healthier way? And uh, one day we sat down and we had that conversation. You know what that conversation is? If you're going to be all that God wants you, you need a spiritual father that you pursue who's going to have that conversation. And I'm not saying one spiritual father, uh, and don't use the language either in terms of that's my dad. I just don't want that patronizing thing. Maybe you do that in this context, but in South Africa, we're very nervous of creating codependencies and you know exaggerating the role. There's one father that we want to call father, and that's God. But I said to him, and I sat down, and I said to him, Terran, uh, one of the great things I want to I want to share with you today is you're an amazingly gifted guy, but you know when you're ready to to you're like a a, a bird with with two wings, but only one of them is flapping. I want to ask you, where do you think you're going? And uh, you know it was humorous, and he said round and round in circles. I said I can't help you with all the gifting you got, but what I can help you with is how to get some character how to get some foundation in the inner part of your life. I can help do that. I want to walk with you, but I can only do it with your permission. Why don't you go and think about that? And he came back a week later and he said, man, I so need your help. And the, and the rest is just the most amazing story of partnership. This guy's gone to plant churches and, and, uh, and uh, listen to his talk online this week because uh, he's a way better preacher th- than me. And that's what happens. You want your sons to go way, way past you. And we, we love that. So I want to ask you, who are you pursuing? 
Are you pursuing your peers? Pursuing your mates at the pub? Who are you pursuing? Have you got a vision for maturity? Got a vision for for character and Christ-likeness? Who are you pursuing? If God's turning the hearts of the fathers, I want to put it to you, there's a supernatural work of grace in and through the gospel in our generation. The men are there. We need to respond as fathers to that turning. But I want to say to the sons and the daughters among us, let's pursue, let's move toward them. Let's not allow past disappointments in church or in leaders who've let us down. And let's start to not just trust, let's start to entrust as we move together. Back on my life in the early days, I'm so grateful for Gerald Stokes, my first pastor. Struggling as a young Christ follower with sexual sin. He didn't sit me down to have a coffee. He just had the courage at the door as he shook my hand. I said, Tim Pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm just struggling. He said, Romans 6, 7, and 8. Go and read that stuff. You'll be okay. I thought, but I, I needed a hug. I, I need a little bit more tender touch. I, and so I thought, okay, let me just give it a go. And I went and wrote, read Romans 6, 7, and 8. And I thought I was fathered by somebody who pointed me to what the father wanted to do about me. I was so grateful for that in-your-face moment. I had a moment with a father. God had turned his heart to all me. I had a few other guys. Dudley Daniel led a movement called New Covenant Ministries when I was leading a church in age 27, leading my first church. And uh, in that season, feeling like God had sent famine into my soul. And I so knew that what I was building was so different to what my heart was longing for. And he was just a man that uh, no strings attached in terms of formal relationship who sat me down. And everyone I was meeting was telling me what God was saying. And he asked me the most disturbing question I've ever heard. And now I just ask it to my guys regularly. He said to me, so Rigby, what's God been saying to you lately? That assumes that I'm in the place of wanting to hear what God is saying to me. And I thought everyone I was meeting was telling me what God was saying. Suddenly, it's what God was saying to me. What a joy. Honor those men before you today. Number three, to the fathers among us, what's God saying? Be like Barnabas. Be like Barnabas. So many of us, many of us we read the New Testament, we spy to be like Paul. Let me just say that Paul should inspire us, but Barnabas is a way more accessible model of leadership and fathering than, than Paul is. And I'm not saying that Paul was not father-hearted in any way. Don't hear that. But I just love Barnabas. He's the guy in Acts 9.26 when Saul, who becomes Paul, had just been powerfully converted to the gospel. He was the high priest hatchet man and meets God who turns his heart on the Damascus road. Now he wants to join a church in Jerusalem. 
And everybody has heard the reputation. This is a dangerous guy. He could be a spy. Don't let him in. Have you, have you, have you ever experienced? There's 21st century versions of that. People want to join the church and we're reminding them of their past baggage and telling them why there's no place here. And that's exactly what he's experiencing. And there's just this beautiful verse that says, but Barnabas, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostle. He's apostles. He's an advocate and the rest, you just see ministry flourishing in Jerusalem. He could see God could take a, a person with misdirected passions. And as God turns a heart, God could recalibrate a life and, and redirect those misdirected passions for, for the fame of Christ, for the, for the sake of the gospel, for the purposes of God. We need to be careful that we never have a vocabulary that says that person can never be a Christian. God could never use that person. Folk, we need to be open to this supernatural work. And of course, when the church is planted in Antioch and they need to send somebody to strengthen the church, so they send Barnabas. Listen to Barnabas. It says, when Barnabas came, he saw the evidence of the grace of God, and he was glad. Do you think Antioch was a perfect church? There was a whole lot going right, but it was immature. And he didn't go there to see the hole in the donut. He went there to see what are the evidences of grace. And as John Piper says, he had a good eye, and he had a glad heart for the potential of grace. But it wasn't the only time that we see Barnabas in action there's a moment when Paul and Barnabas have that big bust up where uh, in a previous uh, missionary trip, uh, John Mark had, had bailed or maybe missing mom's cooking or maybe there was a girl back home and he got the text to so say somebody was making a move on her and he just wanted to get home and, and look after uh, you know, this girl he'd fallen in love with. I, I, I don't know, just, just have some latitude there. I don't know why he bailed, but he bailed. Isn't it interesting that Paul, says, mate, you, know, you can't come with us on mission. And it was such a massive issue. I could imagine the conversation going something like this. Uh, Barnabas says, Paul, do you remember when you tried to get into church and everybody said no? Do you remember I opened the door for you and now you couldn't get into church, but now we've got somebody knocking on the door of mission and you don't want to let them in a mission. Folks, there are 21st versions of that. Are we letting that? Yeah, are we letting the sons into church? I'm not talking about token church. Are we trusting? Are we risking? Are we believing in them? And are we letting them in a mission to advance the cause of Christ? It's Paul. It's Barnabas taking the risks with both a Paul and a John Mark and the rest is history. We've got one third of the New Testament from those two people. All the epistles of Paul might never have been written, hypothetically, if he wasn't led in the church. And John Mark is the Mark who wrote Mark's gospel. Wow, what a story. Scan the topography in your neighborhood. Are you a talent scout? Do you have a glad eye? Can you see in the brokenness around us, that this is the raw clay that God uses to accomplish his purposes? Have you got confidence in God being able to transform hearts and lives and become part of this massive new adventure? I want to paint a picture for you of poverty from Ecclesiastes. I think it's chapter 4. It says, 
Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity and an unhappy business. What's, what's, what's the wise man telling us? He's telling us that you might be in the, in the, you might be a businessman, you might have huge resources at your disposal. You might have a investment advisors and you just absolutely knocking it out the park in business. But picture poverty as if, if you've got all this wealth and it's only in an asset base and it's not in relationships on either side of you and sons coming up before. I want, want to ask you, will, will, will you be a Barnabas? Will you get a vision to see who's going to slipstream your life? Last point to the leaders in front line. If you're a dad or a mom or you're in business in the marketplace, I want to just create a bigger playing field for this. Invest in your Timothys. Train them. Look at 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. You have heard me teach things. That's what happens when people are leaning into our lives. Yes, they might hear it in a formal environment. You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. That's the New Living Translation. There's three phases to training and equipping. I want you to see it. There's this kind of parenting phase where it's all about grace, hugging, securing the sons. Uh, Paul does this, my true son in the faith. Over and over, he speaks like that of Timothy. There's genuine affection and care. That's the first phase. People need to know that they loved before we wow them with all our influence. They need to know that we, we want to spend our lives toward them, that we've got margin. That's what parents are there to do. So there's a parenting phase. Then there's a pace setting or a direction setting pace. We function, function as a bit of a compass. We describe what due north is in this journey. We're an example of what true maturity looks like. He says, you know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. 2 Timothy 3.10. How do you set the pace? How do you set the direction? How do you lay maturity foundations? Well, just going to read them to you. We affirm the role of the gospel. Paul, writing to Timothy, says that the truthful saying, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm worst. I just love it that the guy doing the fathering is saying, I just want you to know, I'm, I'm the worst guy who's ever lived. Was he the worst guy? No, he wasn't. But in his eyes, he understood that it, it took Jesus coming to this planet if he were the only sinner and, the, and he saw himself as the, as the worst. What does that do? It creates massive spaciousness in your heart for everyone else to be included because you've already occupied worst of sinner role. He says he did this so that I'd be a billboard of the mercy of God. In my generation. And what Paul's doing to Timothy, he's saying the gospel always has a forwarding address, Timothy. Me to you, you to someone else. He puts scripture front and center. 
It's not reading the Bible as some route learning. It's letting the scriptures read us, the thoughts and intents of our hearts. This book, Timothy, that makes us wise for salvation. This book that's profitable for reproof, for instruction. Timothy, handle the word of God rightly. Be a good minister. Timothy, have a theology because, Timothy, everyone has a theology. And your theology is your lens. And if you have a poor or inaccurate view of God, you're going to see the world in a distorted way. You're going to have cracked lenses. You need a good theology. He says, Timothy, flee those youthful passions. That's what we've got to do. Help our young men and women beat the tyrannies of sin and temptation. Got to teach This emerging generation that wants instant gratification, we've got to teach them, this is fathering, to lay hold of eternal life. Young men, young women, 30 seconds after we die, we know exactly how we should have lived. And the Word of God tells us that that if you could know, well, let me put it like this, if, if you knew how you should have lived, would it change the way you lived? The Scriptures are telling us what really matters? Timothy, there's only one thing that Jesus is building that's going to pass into eternity. Do you love the local church? We need to teach young men and women to love the local church like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We've got to remind Those who are looking to us, the sons and the daughters, we've got to remind them that they have a unique set of fingerprints. We've got to tell them, don't neglect your gifts. We've got to more than just say fan into flame. We've got to create fireside conversations where we stir up those gifts in their lives. We've got to tell them, don't be timid. We've got to tell them to God the deposit. One day you give an account to God for those spiritual gifts that have been put into your life. And we've got to build into this Emerging generation that we're moving toward with grace and wisdom and love and tenderness, the potential to reproduce themselves. 2 Timothy 2 2. And we've got to teach them to honor the whispers of the Holy Spirit, the prophetic words by which we can fight a good warfare. And then the last part of the last part of this call to invest and train is not just pace parenting or pace setting, uh, but it's also partnering. Timothy, my fellow worker, Romans 16, 21, sends you his greetings. He was a son who moved into being a student and is now graduated to co-labor. I want to lead a church that's getting both older and younger at the same time. I want to create a, be part of a, a team God is turning our hearts to a new possibility, not just toward each other in reconciliation, but turning our hearts together to be part of a a new rush of spiritual adrenaline that moves us into these church planting uh, frontiers. We're no longer counting the apples on the tree. We're starting to count the trees in the apples. Let me land, and I'm handing to Josh. Malachi. Chapter 4 and verse 6 anticipates the wonderful work of Jesus on the cross. See, Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing, and he would have read Malachi, and he knew that God was going to turn hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fathers, but he knew that the starting point was that our hearts needed to be 
turned back to God. And so Jesus on the cross, as the father turns his face away, is a briefly in sheer displeasure for the sin of the world. He's the giant shock absorber as the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus on the cross. The father's face is turned away from the son so that the son can turn the father's face. My dear friends, the God who waits for us at this table is not the God who's frowning over us. He's the God who's smiling over us and welcoming us home. Fathers, I want to commission you today to move toward the sons. Take the initiative. It's the son, the fathers first. I want to commission you to affirm, invest, create margin. One more or less round of golf. One less long weekend away on your own. Take some with you. Take people with you. And I ask you to stir up your gifts so that we would prophesy new possibilities over the, those that God has entrusted to us in this day, in this place.